to Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. I'm your host, Eli, and I'm very excited today because we have at long last reached a very important (laughs) benchmark. We give you our 50th episode release. Man, our golden anniversary. I'm tempted to put like a canned, you know, audience cheer in there. That's really... I'm, what Bullhorn, is horn? What do you call that? Is it golden when you're married? It's 50 years. 50 years is golden anniversary. This is our golden release. I will always remember that because one year I was probably 10. My mom sent me to get a anniversary card for her mom, my grandma. It was their 40th anniversary uh-huh. and I got him a silver anniversary card. Ah. I was like, that sounds special. The silver one. Okay. And then my mom had a good laugh about it. And she explained <laughs> to me, silver is 25, gold is 50. Oh. So it stuck in your mind. It did stick forever. Well, um, I just think back to the days when we were the specter of the pod fade <laughs> after episode seven loomed large, you know, episode one, two, three, we didn't know how long we'd be going. We are going strong as ever. Strong I would as say. ever. Listenership is as strong as it's ever been. Eli, speaking of listenership, our interactions with our listeners are getting better and better. I mean, that's been a huge highlight for me this past probably six months hearing from our listeners from all over the world. It really shows like that these things can be cultivated because you've been doing a masterful job on Facebook for one, mm. Andrew, just getting good content out there, staying in touch. I'm like a terrible stay in touch person. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we also, I mean, we had some some serious geographical boons in, of, of late yes. in our releases. Yes. So uh, first shout out, all our new South Dakota listeners. <laughs> Uh, this was episode 46, I think, yeah. the Chisleek, Chisleek. Chisleek Festival and um, the origins of Chisleek in the Caucasus. So and how's our South Dakota listenership doing? It was at one? They were in the bottom three states Ooh. of all 50 states. Ooh. And I, like there was essentially one listen, Marnette. <laughs> Shout Marnette. out to Marnette. And since that episode released... South Dakota has jumped up into our top 30 states now in the U.S. Now, normally being in the top 30 of anything is not really something (laughs) to boast about. But in this case, that is huge. They are trending upward. Trending. Yes. Guys, share the wealth because the Chisleek. The Chisleek circle. Is coming. What is it? July 27th. July 27th. Be there. (laughs) All right. So shout out to all our new South Dakota listeners. And then um, we've got some really... um, cool feedback specifically for episode 45, which was about uh, the Karachai people in their own words. Oh, yeah. And so we heard from Samantha, who is a Karachai girl in Moscow. She wrote us, she not only, first of all, (laughs) she became like a pen pal. (laughs) Samantha, major shout out. She was super complimentary, really excited about what we're doing. and All in English, great English. Yeah, amazing. But not only that, um, uh, like a week or so after we first hear from her, maybe two weeks, we flip open Facebook and lo- what does the text say? Hi guys, I made a new logo for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is unsolicited graphic art. And it is, it is amazing. I mean, it was really good. And I don't, wasn't it one of your friends who did our initial logo? Yeah. 
this one is awesome. Well, my friend executed it. It was my concept, which yeah. I totally like, like surrender as lame It was just an idea. <laughs> and it's gotten us this far. I but- think Samantha said outdated. <laughs> or, or old. Or, so, We're working on it. Okay? So it might even be that by the release of this episode, we'll have a new logo. Yes. It might just be a whole new thing. So, Samantha, amazing. Thanks for the new logo. You gave us some real good feedback. And so that was one response to the episode 45 about the car chai. Then um, we've been in touch with Timur, who is a Shapsig, uh, one of the Circassian uh, nations, who lives in Istanbul, Turkey. His family moved there uh, in the 19th century. And... Great feedback on the Karachai language. And it's really ironic because Nal Ruz, who was with us, a big time linguist. linguist. Yeah. And then um, Timur came in with some great linguistic feedback about the Turkic language. So Karachai, Bokor, those are both Karachai or Turkic, Turkic languages. And he was saying, we were having this discussion about Karandash, which in Russian is pencil. Pencil. And then Kardash, which in Karachai means brother. And he said in Turkish, Kardesh is brother. And listen, listen to what Timur said. He said the symbol dash, dash or dish means two or more persons sharing the same thing. And Karin refers to abdomen. Okay. And he so, says, which makes sense, two people sharing uh, the same abdomen are brothers. Yes, they share their mother's abdomen womb. That's amazing. He connected it like to the Turkic language. And yeah. And it just proves that our Karachai guests really speak Karachai. Yes, it's true. <laughs> All the better. And then listen to what else Timur shared with us. Uh so he was comparing uh to what the Karachai said about life today in yeah. the Caucasus with life in Turkey as a Caucasus person, Shapsig. And he said, a mother does not call his son with his original official name. Right, and time out. So that's what we got on the episode. It was like a mother won't call her son by his name in public or at all. And that's as far as it went. And that was a really interesting tidbit. But listen to what he unveils. Yeah, he said, it's regarded as a... Oh, hold on a second. It's because that boy probably was named after his grandfather. And how dare a bride, i.e. the mother uh, or the daughter-in-law, could call her father-in-law's name, could say it, even though it's her son's name. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, that is... That's some, that's some serious deep insight. Deep insight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe, you know, the tradition carries on even where that's not the specific instance, mm-hmm. you know, but just that, like, there's a reason. My mother's a counselor. And one of the <laughs> one of the axioms, one of the... The maxims that she has, she coins lots of little coinages, but she said, she came to believe, she said, everybody makes sense all the time. And her point was like, if something seems really strange or weird or even messed up to you, there's probably a logic to it. It may not be good logic, maybe, but you know, but like, there's a reason to it. And this just shows that it's like, wow, that makes from the inside. You can see how that... Anyway, that's awesome feedback. Thank you for writing. It's really yeah. great for us to we, receive that. We love hearing from you. And really, I would say the content and the direction of the podcast, if it's getting better, I think it is, it's oh, because yeah. of our listeners. Like, they're giving us great feedback. Keeping input. us sharp. 
So keep it up. We love hearing from you guys. Well, I think today's episode has been long in coming, but I feel like we have been coming of age, Andrew, as a, as a podcast. And we have, you know, I, it's even with fear and trembling that, that <laughs> we tread on today's topic, but I think we are in good hands. So I'm excited for it. Yes. So um, this is the, our second release in a little mini series about we're talking to uh, academic experts or scholars about the North Caucasus. So want to introduce to our listeners. Dr. Maria Polinski. Welcome. Woo! Dr. Polinski, welcome to Caucus Talk. Thank you. It is great to have you on the show. I would love to say there was like some cool way we met Dr. <laughs> Polinski, but ah. I found you on Google. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Hey. And uh, we can say we met in virtual reality. That's right. There we go. That was, that was impressive. She cooled that for you, man. Yeah. She made I, that cool. <laughs> you know, I bet we have some mutual friends, Dr. Polinski. We just got to follow that trail. Six degrees of Andrew Slade. Um, so Dr. Polinski, um, why don't you just tell us a little about yourself, personal intro and uh, a little bit about um, your work with the North Caucasus, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Okay, so I was born in Moscow, as some of your listeners. Yeah. Uh, and I left Moscow about 30 years ago to work in the United States. Okay. Um, and I'm currently uh, teaching at the University of Maryland, and uh, the Caucasus has always been part of my research, part of my interest. I started with the North Caucasus, and now I'm actually moving into the South, um, okay. never too late, um, <laughs> and starting an interesting um, research relationship with people in Tbilisi, Georgia. So if your listeners want to follow me, yeah. they're always welcome. But um, today we're going to talk about the North Caucasus. Right. I've done a fair amount of work on uh, languages of Dagestan, Okay. And also some from the Northwest Caucasus. And, and by fair amount yeah, of work, I'm, I'm just going to, sorry to interrupt, but like fair amount of work is like dozens of publications. I mean, you've been at this for a while and you are, have to be one of the like most widely published authorities on North Caucasus languages. Um, from my little exposure. It helps that there are so many languages in this <laughs> area. A very so modest the, response. Which I published, there will be more for us to do. That's right. Huh. So, um... Let's go back to the beginning a little bit, Dr. Polinsky. So are you Russian? Is that correct? Yes, I am. You want me to speak Russian or English? No, no. We'll speak English, but just clarifying, you said you were born in Moscow. So did you leave? uh, How old were you when you moved to the States? Were you a student or after your university years? Um, I already moved when I had my PhD. So I had started working on some languages of the Caucasus when I was still in Russia. Uh And when I moved to the States, I didn't want to give it up. And uh, as they say, you know, if the mountains doesn't come to Muhammad, Muhammad can bring the mountain to Southern California, <laughs> which is what I did. Uh, awesome. I had, I had the project when I was still teaching at USC in Los Angeles, where I brought a native speaker of a very small language in the Caucasus. The language is called Dido. Okay. Um, your listeners can look it up. And um, we started working on that language. So I had never been to... Uh, the Tsunta area uh, when this guy arrived and I worked with him and then I had the opportunity to travel to the north northeast Caucasus to Dagestan and work with speakers there as well. So can you tell us when you say uh, you started working on the language what kind of work was it? It was mostly uh, research work and this was the work on um, this language which hadn't been studied before and that's why I 
picked it. And wow. The reason it had not been much studied before mm. I picked it was that it's uh, spoken in the most um, isolated highland area of the of the Northeast Caucasus in the Tsunta district. Yes. And, so, and the name of the language uh, goes between Dido, which I mentioned, that's the Georgian word, uh-huh. and says, uh-huh. and say in that language means the eagle. So the, they often say that the name of the language is actually, um, actually means where the eagles live. Huh. So it's so high, uh, high up in the mountains wow. that you can only get there maybe six six months out of 12. <laughs> oh. And haven't really worked on this language, and that's why I picked it. I thought, well, it would be interesting to have its description and understand how it works. Wow. Um, and so my, my consultant, as they call people who speak the language, was also enrolled at USC as a graduate student. Wow. And so the work was based on our interaction with him. The way linguists work is probably very boring to people that are not <laughs> linguists, and that is we don't learn to speak a language. Uh-huh. We more learn how this language is constructed. Gotcha. So I can explain the structure of this language really, really well. But if I have to carry a small conversation in it, I actually get very tired because well, I we, don't speak it so well. We relate to that because <laughs> we're, we all try to learn Russian. So. I Actually, I would say I'm the opposite. I can carry on a long conversation in Russian, but uh, the, I, the structure of the language still <laughs> just baffles me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that means that you and I are a good team. Oh, there we go. Hey, I will gladly join your team, Dr. Polinsky. You just tell me what to do. We'll get it done. I mean, what's really, what's so amazing to me about this is, you know, it's sort of dawning on the human race that, you know, sort of the age of exploration and and virgin, you know, discoveries is kind of over in terms of geography. You know, maybe there's some places on the ocean floor that haven't been discovered or explored, but all, you know, the mountains, they're all named, everything's mapped. But here you've got a cultural area that, we're talking the nineties had, had no, you know, outside scholarly research done on it at all. Talk about virgin territory. Wow. And I I mean, I don't mean that in a conquesting kind of way, but just like, uh, what an opportunity. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And that's what makes it so exciting. And, um, as I said, there are about 60 languages in that area. And although the larger ones have been described, there's still a lot of opportunities for people to go in and do interesting, new work. So um, everybody should just look at that. Um, on top of that, it's a wonderful place to travel. The people are so nice and hospitable hmm. and they just love the interest when people come from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. We, we talk about that a lot on the we podcast. Sure we, we can attest to that from our personal experience. So uh, Dr. Polinsky, you mentioned when you say there are 60 languages in the area, are you talking about the greater Caucasus region or specifically in the North Caucasus or Dagestan? I'm also only talking about the Northeast Caucasus, that's Dagestan and Chechnya. Wow. So in Dagestan, there are about 50 languages. If you look at the Northwest Caucasus, uh, there are not so many. It's mostly um, Adige, as they sometimes call it, Circassian. Yes. Uh, there's Karcha, there's Balkar. Yep. Um, there is Abhaz um, if you go to into Georgia, that's right. and that's about it. So I'm sorry, but, 50 is like bigger. That's a higher number than I've really heard. Yeah. Before. So this is great because you are. I mean, this is your your field of work. You're an expert. Her thing. Uh, obviously, you mentioned the big languages. People has studied Avar, Dargin, uh, probably Lok, uh, Lesgin. What are some of those smaller languages, like uh, you mentioned, says 
What are some of the other ones that probably our listeners have never heard of there and some of the kind of high up, hard to play, reach, reach places in Dagestan? It says uh, another language very close to it says it's called Beshta. Uh-huh. Uh, then there's a language called Hinuk. There's a language called Hunzib. Um, wow. If you go down towards the Azerbaijani border, there are languages like Rutul and Tahur. Uh, which are a little larger, but yeah. um, there is some work. There are a lot of people now in Moscow as well as in some German universities who also do work on these languages. And uh, the uh, goal is to describe these languages as best as we can. Hmm. Uh, there's a small language which became quite famous because um, people in Surrey in the United Kingdom started working on it. It's called Archie. Huh. Uh, so there was a famous Russian linguist, Alexander Kibrick, um, who passed away a few years ago, and he started those pioneering studies of languages of the Caucasus, and that started like a whole avalanche of studies. Uh, and then Kibrick was in um, Archib, which is this village where Archie is spoken, just one single village. Wow. So Kibrick worked there in the 70s, and then more recently people followed his lead and basically revisited all the work that he did in the 70s. And a lot of his work is amazingly accurate. Wow. But other stuff has changed because languages change. Sure. We get older and languages change um, over time. And so it's really important to go back for years from the time that, that Kibrick did his work and revise and look at some new stuff that's coming up. That is amazing. Um, so... <laughs> You, I think you're the best person we could ask this question. You always hear in Dagestan, you know, you go from one valley to another or even one village to another, and they speak a completely different language and they don't understand each other. Um, do you, in all your research you've done in your study, I mean, how do you account for that? Like, how did in Dagestan specifically, all of these different languages, a lot of them completely unrelated, kind of get, end up jam-packed into this small region? Well, that's a great question, and I don't think anybody has um, a great answer, but it helps that a lot of these villages are separated by high mountains, so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of isolation, and Mm -hmm. they often say that languages thrive in isolation. Mm. Oh, wow. People who speak these languages go to Mahachkala or Derbent as they move to the lowlands. They often start speaking Russian or Avar and losing the smaller languages Mm -hmm. spoken in their so primarily it's isolation and, of course, the Northeast Caucasus uh, contributes to that by virtue of geography. You can't get very close from one place to another. Uh, as far as the relationship, these languages are all related to each other, mm-hmm. but they're, they're related very remotely, and that's why people don't understand each other. Uh. But that's not very surprising if you look at, let's say, English and Russian. English speakers and Russian speakers don't understand each other either, yeah. but these languages belong to the same family. They do? Which started about 8,000 years ago. It's oh, called <laughs> got it. And in fact, it started in the area where you guys are. And then uh, people who spoke that, proto, we call it a proto-language, the old language, the ancestor language, huh. about 8,000 years ago, they started moving in different directions. Some people went to where Moscow is, and some people went to where London is. And as a result, you've got English well, and Russian. Historically, they are connected. So we look at, linguists look at how languages are connected over time. But uh, for a linguist, it's not terribly surprising if languages are 
as we call them, genetically related and nevertheless are not mutually intelligible if people right. don't understand each other. If you look at the um, at Dagestan, you also see that people share a number of large languages. You already mentioned Avar, mm-hmm. and that's the language that many people speak. And when the Russians were doing their census, they often asked people to write uh, write down the nationality or the ethnicity that these people belonged uh-huh. to. And a lot of people who spoke smaller languages wrote down that they were Avars. Huh. In fact, they were not. They were Tsez, Beshtar, uh-huh. oh, sure. and so on. And you mentioned Darga, Dargri or Dargin. Uh-huh. Um, think of that as one language, but in fact, we now see as work is going on on these languages that they're probably in eight or nine separate languages that's amazing can can you in like a nutshell for our listeners just explain how linguists know where one language ends and another begins because i think a lot of people have in their mind there's languages, and then there's dialects, and then there's you know accents and regionalisms, and yeah. and I I do think that there's a natural skepticism when people hear some of these things about the Caucasus, like yeah. well it's probably really just a dialect, and they're sort of lazy and don't want to talk to each other, <laughs> and we know it's not that. Like yeah, can you maybe succinctly give us a the inside scoop on that? Uh, there are a lot of inside scoops on that, and someone said very famously that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, so we, we know that English is a language, or French, or Russian, or Spanish, languages. but if you look at smaller languages that don't have an army and a navy, that's where linguists come in, and what we often do is we take, let's say, 200 most common words, yes. words which relate to like basic actions like walking, or swimming, or sleeping, to the basic uh, foods to uh, basic natural phenomena like wind, sun, mm-hmm. um, snow. Uh, and what we do is we look at how these words in two separate languages, how much they resemble each other. And if we find a fair, in- fair amount of resemblance, uh, then we say, oh, these are probably dialects of the same language. Okay. And if we don't find resemblance, let's say, beyond um, 65, 70% of the vocabulary, then we say these are separate languages. They may be very close, just like, you know, German and Dutch are very close, yeah. or uh, Spanish and Italian, but these are separate languages. And so there are ways to measure that, by, as I said, by looking at this basic vocabulary. So I hope this will help. And if your listeners want to come in and... Um, look at some languages in the Caucasus and measure the vocabulary similarities for themselves. I will be very happy to see that. <laughs> oh, yeah. We challenge any of our listeners Come on. to go head-to-head with Dr. Polinsky. Yeah. yeah, let's do that. <laughs> wow, that was fascinating. Awesome. Huh. So although I gave you like a very simple explanation, you're right that sometimes it's really hard to tell if something is a separate language or a dialect. Uh, so, for example, back to Tsez, which I've worked on, there is a separate um, version of Tsez called Sagada mm. in a small village. And people are arguing whether or not it's a separate language that should be called Sagada mm. or if it's a dialect of Tsez. And so we don't know. Huh. And it's probably changing before your eyes. 
it's probably changing and it's also sitting there waiting for someone to come in and do the description. My work on says has been based on uh, larger villages um, in the area called Mokok. And um, I happen to work in Sagada. There's a very, very small description going back to the 1940s, but just not enough data. And a couple of years ago, I actually uh, met an American who was interested in working in that area and describing hmm. Sagada. I don't know what happened, but um, I hope that this guy is still interested. Do you remember his name? His name was Daniel Wilson. Huh, okay. And the last I saw him, was he was in Moscow taking some classes in linguistics. So I'm still hopeful. We got to track that guy down. In the meantime, caucus talk is on its way to that region. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to solve the riddle. All right, I have another question while we're on it. I know Andrew has a lot of, but he plans the questions, and then I just sort of come up with ones that <laughs> mess up his plan. Um, but I'm just wondering, uh, is there... Any correlation between it when when linguists or institutions, universities are looking at going in and doing descriptions, do they how do the, does population play into that? Um, and I I just wonder because there's like you've said there are these tiny little groups and languages, do they get the short shrift because they're smaller or are they m- more valued because they're more rare or does it go both ways? It goes both ways, and I think. Uh, one of the things that we need to factor in is how much the community that you're working in wants you to be there. Because yeah. it just barges in and says, oh, I'm going to work on your language, and they come uninvited. That's not a good strategy. So the reason I've been doing all this work in the Caucasus is that my work has always been welcomed in the community. Hmm. And I've worked with uh, local linguists, local native speakers, who are very interested in preserving and studying their own languages. Hmm. But, for example, if I showed up and said, oh, you know, let's do that, and they were not interested, it would be unethical in my part to uh, push forward. So we don't really discriminate between large and small languages. Every language is valuable in its own right. Yes. But we we always have to try to be uh, helpful to the community because you don't want your community to stay on the sidelines. They need to be active participants yeah. in research and documentation. So some of these smaller languages um, that you've worked with, let's say Tsez or Dido, um, I mean, are, is, it, is this a... Like, what are some of the things they want you to do? You talk about partnering with the local community. Are... Yeah, we actually created a, a textbook for first graders. Wow. So that they learn That's the huge. That and they can learn how to read in this language because huh. generally what they were taught in schools was to, to read in Russian and then Avar. And I'm very proud that we were able to help them with this um, textbook. Uh, and uh, one of the consultants, my main language consultant that I work with, he is actually <clears throat> one of the enthusiasts of the Dido language. If you go on Facebook, there is a whole group. Um, and so uh, people who are interested in this language can join the group and start le- reading some poetry in this language. There is um, <laughs> there are at least two people who write interesting poetry um, in wow. both in Tess and in Avar. And um, we're there to help. Do your efforts at getting uh, instructional materials produced in a small language like says ever come up against opposition? Uh, 
mostly it's um, a set of economic issues. It's not so much the opposition. So when we did the textbook for it says first graders, um, I had to get a grant whereby uh, we were able to to pay for the printing. Sure. Mm. But I haven't received any opposition from the community. They're very happy to see that. One of the things we see in the community is not the opposition, but the need to educate people about the importance of keeping the smaller languages. Yeah. You know, everybody thinks, oh, it's important to learn Russian. It's important to learn Avar, then you'll get a good job and you will uh, be wanted everywhere. And so if you tell the parents that it's equally important that their child speak the small language that they speak in the family, that's a very valuable um, contribution to the, to the society and to the community. Absolutely. Man, it's so interesting. So um, we, we could, a lot of directions we could go. Dr. Polinsky, I'd love to hear a little about your experience actually in Dagestan, your travels there. Um, what has it been like for you? You know, you're from Moscow, uh, you're Russian, and you said you've lived the last 30 years in the United States. Um, what are some of the things you've learned about Dagestani peoples in the North Caucasus through all your travels there? I think if I were to describe it with one word, it, it would be hospitality. <laughs> I have never been to uh, places that are more hospitable, and I've never been taken better care of. Than <laughs> so I would very much recommend that everybody experience the Dagestani hospitality. And, um, of course, the beauty of the area is just amazing. Um, people always try to... Um, save money and travel to Switzerland, but I would say there are some areas in Dagestan which are equally beautiful and breathtaking. It's just that there may be less infrastructure, and people don't go there and drive. That's funny. But, That's I just I had almost that exact conversation yesterday with my parents oh, because okay. we were just in the mountains, and I said it's like Switzerland. My wife said, but with a little like less infrastructure. I said, That's exactly what we said. The roads are not quite but, as. But yeah. it is. It's these canyons with thousand foot sheer oh, granite man. cliffs on either side and waterfalls. I mean, it's anyway. Carry on. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Spinning of waterfalls, uh, just the taste of that water is amazing. Oh, yeah. Now you're talking. <laughs> we just had. <laughs> but these are things, I, I think that uh, this is where words would really fail because the natural beauty and hmm. the um, uh, welcome and hospitality of the people are really the things that people should experience on their own. Gosh, that's so great. Um, well, speak a little, Dr. Polinsky, about um, the. These languages all belong, correct me if I'm wrong, to the Nak Dagestani language group. Is that right? That's correct. So these are these languages are unique to the Caucasus Mountains. Um, That's right. You study uh, just I looked over some of your publications and your uh, different kind of field of study. You work with different languages in other parts of the world too, and then you're a linguist. So um, I'm interested. What makes the Nak Dagestani language is unique, kind of in the world of linguistics, when you compare them to other languages around the world. Uh, one of the things that jumps at you is uh, the complicated sound systems. Like, <laughs> if listen to these languages. Agreed. I would say it more comes at you like a 18-wheeler truck. And I'm not a good imitator, so I'm actually not the right person to work <laughs> in those languages. But um, it's kind of mind-boggling how a two-year-old can learn to pronounce all those things. Wow. And so yeah. that's one of the uh, challenges for linguists. How do we explain this richness of sound systems and how do we actually 
study how children learn them. We haven't done much. We had a small project on the acquisition, the learning of, of uh, some of the local languages by children. And we're continuing this work because this is so fascinating. I mean, so I would say it's one of the huh. most important things. And then uh, we're all used to languages that have gender, like French. Uh, in French, you say, um, you know, <clears throat> Uh, or in Spanish, you will use one gender with the word garden right. uh, and different gender with the word table. Table yeah. is feminine, garden is masculine. In these languages, you have anywhere from three to eight genders. Oh, wow. And it's very hard for someone who doesn't speak gender language like English to imagine what it is. But that wow. means like if you say, you know, the man left, you will use one word. Uh, the woman left, you will use a different form of the verb to leave. Uh, the dog left, still another form. Um, and then let's say you say, my book fell down, you'll use a still a different form of the verb wow. to fall down. So uh, these are genders which we need to study, and we've done a fair amount of work trying to explain how you divide all these nouns into, let's say, five or six or eight classes. So I have a question about the sound system. Does yeah. does the international phonetic alphabet ever just fail and not have enough sounds in it? Uh, no, you can always um, add a little squiggle somewhere. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. There's squiggles for it. Okay, so good. We can add your squiggles, but yeah. you're right that the international phonetic alphabet was devised about 100 years ago when we knew so little about these languages. And certainly uh, coming up with the new symbols has been a challenge. When we started working on TAS, uh, there was... It was an additional challenge, just coming up with the right uh, transcription. So I had to create four different symbols for the sound, which we all uh, just show as L in English, L like in Larry. So I had L, I had L with a squiggle, I had the Greek lambda, and then I had a Greek lambda with an apostrophe. And um, only with those four, I was able to capture all the L's that this language uses. I thought Russians like... Two L's was a lot. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> you should probably come from speaking Russian because uh, if you start moving into these languages, that's going to be worse. Oh, Good to man. know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that I haven't. Um, we, you know, we live here in the Central Caucasus, so we don't encounter the Dagestani languages quite as often. We Yet. hear, we hear uh, Chechen and Ingush and. Kabardian um, are more. They're also pretty fun. Kabardian has an enormous sound system. Yeah. Uh, a lot of sounds. And Kabardian is kind of famous among linguists because huh. when you listen to Kabardians, it's like all you hear is shush, shush, shush. Yes. And there is a thing that Kabardian doesn't have any vowels. So there were a couple of linguists who came up with this idea that this is a language without vowels. Since, huh. um, <sighs> since that, this has been uh, debunked. So we still. You know, it's still a normal language. Languages are supposed to have vowels, yeah. but it's something like 90 consonants and two vowels, which is a very unusual ratio. <laughs> yes, that sounds very unusual to me. <laughs> Amazing. Um, wow. Yeah, I've of all those languages you mentioned, Dr. Polinsky, a year ago in the Mount Elbrus region, um, I had a taxi driver who was Rutul. So that I met one Rutul once. I tried to get him to do okay. a quick interview for the podcast, and he he uh, denied me. And then um, I drove recently through the Andi region in the Botlik region. Okay, but yeah, all those other small ones you mentioned. I mean, 
I've lived here almost five years now in the North Caucasus. Eli, you've been here two, two and, and a half. half. Yeah. And you just never cross paths with people from those regions. <laughs> no. Yeah. You kind of have to go we, out of your way. We don't have much isolation in the villages. A lot, a lot of people stay in those little villages and rarely travel somewhere. So um, it's kind of nice that you've already met the road tool. I know. Um, yeah. I worked, I worked a little bit tool and um, Rutul is even more complicated in terms of sounds than says and I remember I had to learn how to count and I could never count beyond one because the <laughs> word for two had such crazy sounds. <laughs> All right, that takes me back to my semester abroad in college when I was went to Czech Republic. So we're just going from like English to a Slavic language and we had this teacher we had to do um, I don't even remember one two was like dva but three was it was like nothing I'd ever encountered before. It was the t, you had a r and a z all at one time. And so you had to like smash them all together, like that. It was something like that. And I just have this image burned in my mind of this teacher like leaning over me, kind of saying, enunciate, (laughs) and just spitting, just just trying to get it out. So I I, I feel you there. (laughs) It Like Dr. Polinsky, I'm always amazed that one of the most basic Russian words to learn is Zdrastvite. Oh, still can't say it. And yeah, it's like, you know, that's hello for our listeners. But that the moment I say that word to somebody, it gives me away. It's I'm a not shibboleth. Russian. They know immediately. There's like, so oh, many sounds, so yeah. many consonants in the beginning that Zdrastvite. I can't roll no, yes, well. I'm very well. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Patch on that there. Uh, they say, and for those who don't want to do that, remember that there is always a cop out. You can say privet. 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 Or zdrastie. I often That's default to zdrastie. That saves me. Um, yeah. They always, I always am told I have a pre-Baltic accent. There we go. Um, so take I'll take that. Yeah. Good old, good old Estonian boy. Um, Dr. Polinsky, this was amazing. It was really a treat to have you with us. Um, you mentioned that uh, if you could sum up kind of your travels in the North Caucasus, you would talk about hospitality. We always ask this question at the end. I want to see if there's anything else you'd like to add, but if you could tell the world one thing about the North Caucasus, uh, what would you like to say? It's a beautiful land, which people haven't seen enough. And I think it needs to to be seen and to be uh, photographed and we should learn more about it agree with that good good finish love it uh we it was really again privileged to have you um thanks for making time for us we're gonna um put some links on our show notes for the podcast for you listeners to some of dr polinsky's um works uh dr polinsky i think you're our second ever guest with their own wikipedia entry um so that's that's big for us (laughs) We're trying to get our own, but <clears throat> our listeners haven't <clears throat> ponied up yet. Uh, but if, if we're talking about um, learning about these languages, um, I wanted to uh, make a plug for the Handbook of Languages of the Caucasus, which we just finished, uh, and it will be coming out at Oxford University Press. So okay. um, Excellent. hopefully by the end of this year. And that would give people a very easy introduction in English to boot to those languages. So if you're ever interested than that. Uh, just keep watching. Uh, it will be out in a few months. So and say it, say it again. It's designed, 
It's called The Handbook of Languages of the Caucasus. Okay. Wow. Uh, published for University Press. So right. it's still in the works, but hopefully it will be an easy and fairly painless introduction to languages of the area. So this is like for a layman, you know, a non-linguist could, could make sense of this. Absolutely. Oh, yes. great. That's awesome. So with that, I mean... Where would that be available? I mean, could we order it on Amazon or bookstores? Once it's out, it should be on the Amazon site. It should also be available from the Oxford University Press site. Uh, so I think just like you order any other books, Barnes & Noble, Excellent. places like that. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Dr. Polinsky and our listeners. We hope you enjoyed that. Um, Fascinating um, insights about linguistics in the Caucasus and especially about Dagestan. If you do have any um, uh, feedback or questions, reach out to us at podcast at caucustalk.com. And then we could even um, connect you with Dr. Polinsky if if you really wanted to. Daniel Wilson, if you're out there listening, that American, Get on it. That American linguist. Get on it. They're, they're waiting for you says in Dagestan. Um, so this was Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus, mountains of Russia. Thanks for listening. 